This time of year has long been about extremes. Bitter cold but roaring fires. Long walks in the snow followed by even longer meals. There's the joy of festive parties and the sore head that inevitably follow. Dark afternoons usher in twinkling lights. And, as deciduous trees shed their leaves, foliage makes its way into the house. This edition of Confect Corner explores the rituals of winter. We'll journey to the high north of Finland to meet a circle of grandmothers knitting the cosiest hats. And meet a creative duo in Zurich who tell us how to throw a seasonal party that reinvents traditions using a little bit of artistic intervention. Whether it's dressing a Nordman fur, perfecting the art of willow weaving, foraging for mistletoe or just finding the perfect woolly jumper, this edition of the show has it covered. This is Confect Corner. We created a Christmas tree. We invited a young, very young Swiss artist to kind of do an intervention. More than reinventing traditions, it's an idea of looking at things differently. In Christmas time, uh, people really love to have cookies that, that they can put and hang on their Christmas tree. And what I adore about it is it involves all the special Czech traditions that I knew when I was growing up and having bells ring for Santa and coins under the plate. It's very, very cozy, but very, very traditional. Welcome to the 10th episode of Confect Corner. I'm Sophie Grove here in London and I'm joined by my co-hosts Gillian Tobias in Paris and Marcella Palik in Zurich. Hello both. Bonjour Sophie and Marcella. <laughs> Bonjour. Hello. Hello Gillian and Sophie. Great to have you down the line. I was just saying it's a bit like a kind of audio triangle, this European um, <laughs> connection we're making. But wonderfully intimate, still on radio. It feels like we're face to face. I know, it does. Yes. It's very cosy in a very virtual way. But it's always lovely to connect. And yeah, a bit of a Christmassy theme for this edition of the programme. Well, it's so Christmassy here in Paris. It has that lovely crisp chill. And uh, Paris does Christmas lights so well. So it's sprinkled with gorgeous white lights. And uh, the Champs-Élysées, the trees are lined with red Christmas lights. So yes, when you get here uh, later this week, you're going to be in full swing Christmas mode. Oh, how wonderful. Just working our outfits out. So um, <laughs> we'll get back to you on that. <laughs> As all our long-term listeners will know, we always like to set the tone at the top of the programme with something that's caught our attention this month. Gillian, you found a new spot in London, of all places. <laughs> <laughs> well, for actually Christmas gift giving, because I think the pleasure of giving gifts is also the pleasure of shopping for them, and it can be a bit daunting. So there is this exquisite emporium called Pentechnicon in Belgravia in London. It opened just before the pandemic, then shut, now it's opened again. But what's wonderful about it is that it's really set along the theme of the synergy between Japanese design and Scandi Nordic design. So it's sort of three or four floors full of fashion and home and perfume and teas and foods with all the common denominator of these two wonderful sort of areas of Scandic and uh, Japan uh, goodies. And uh, they are surprising. So that's what's, I think, always nice to find something original for your loved ones. It's such a beautiful building. I've been to Pantechnicon too. And it's so ambitious. I mean, the space, it's very palatial from the outside. It's like stucco, very Belgravia. And then inside is this minimal 
beautiful joinery and just so surprising as you say like what an exploration when you can't travel as much potentially that place is a really lovely portal to another world. One of the wonderful things about it is in the 1800s, it used to be a bazaar for arts and crafts from around the world. So it has that wonderful feeling of an emporium and searching out the unusual things from afar. And it still sort of has that today, even though it's quite now contemporary in its curation. And Marcella, you've also found a shopping spot too, but in Paris. So, well, Gillian, do you remember probably when we went food shopping at Rue des Martyrs in the Neuvième in Paris when we met last time? Oh, totally. What a divine uh, foodie street. <laughs> yeah, all those little cheese shops, the mouth-watering bakeries, the scented flower stores. Rue des Martyrs appeared so delicious and inviting every four meters. And especially the patisserie by Sébastien Godard looked especially chic and delicious. There I discovered the perfect dinner party gifts, actually. Beautiful big glasses filled with homemade baba or rum, white peaches in syrup, galisson, pain d'épices, fruits confits and much more. So I think when we go to Paris end of the week for our confect party, I will definitely stop by. I think we might join you. (laughs) I think so. But such an exploration in Paris, you can really craft a beautiful day out of just buying gifts for other people. The only difficulty is you just end up pocketing them for yourself. (laughs) At the end of the day, you think, oh, can I part with any of these things? (laughs) Oh, totally. But what about you, Sophie? What have you discovered? So, well, I haven't necessarily found it yet, but what I'm really planning to do with my December here in London is go to some beautiful kind of old world hotels and have a drink, but also check out some of the Christmas trees because this year Kim Jones, creative director of Dior Menswear, and he's designed the Claridge's Christmas tree, which is always beautiful. And I love the fumoir and I love just having a glass and it's just the essence of London Christmas there. And you can kind of lap it up in just kind of an hour and a half, really. But it does sound like a very exciting kind of installation with projections of white toile and this amazing holographic um, sort of modernism. And, and also the Connaught Christmas tree looks beautiful, which is outside in the square, designed by Idris Khan, a British artist, and Anne Morris. So it's very sculptural and kind of interesting that hotels are sort of really pushing the narrative on the tree and making much more of an artistic intervention. And it is interesting. It's really the most oldie-worldy traditional hotels who are taking quite a contemporary curatorial approach to their Christmas trees. It's just lovely to, to make sure you kind of appreciate the aesthetic of Christmas and just get those moments in between rushing about with gift wrapping and finding all the right things for all the people you love. Just having those moments of really just a corner of a bar and the perfect mixed cocktail and just take it all in you know (laughs) just see what people are doing and actually Durant's hotel around the corner from here is very nice for fireside recovery moment so I think that's where you can find me Gillian and Marcella (laughs) join me in fact join you yes join you While we're on the topic of Christmas, it seems like a very good point to bring in our first guest this week. 
Bettina Russo and Haya Lang are the creative duo behind Rue Hippolyte, a design and art consultancy in Zurich. They combine design objects and decoration with abstract, site-specific art commissions to curate exciting interiors. In the latest issue of Confect magazine, they invited us to attend a festive event they were throwing. And so we've invited them on our podcast to talk about reinventing the Christmas party. Joining me here in our Zurich studio are Bettina and Kaya. Perhaps first, Kaya, you can tell us about the party we featured in the magazine and how you are reimagined what a Christmas soiree looks like. The evening we hosted in Zurich, where we built up a Christmas tree with an intervention of an artist. So this the evening, like you were, you you attended, was 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 a trial for that, you know, to see how everything works out. And uh, for that evening and for the pop-up we are doing this week, we kind of created a Christmas tree, which uh, where we invited the young, very young Swiss artist, Caroline Brecke, to kind of do an intervention. And that's very typical to how we normally work. More than reinventing traditions, it's, it's, it's an idea of looking at things differently. Sounds, sounds very interesting. <laughs> so can you describe what the tree, what the Christmas tree looks like? Well, this is just, it's a its a pine tree. I think we use the spruce. I think that's the correct name because it's a tree we like. It's very full. And we just uh, created decoration to go on the tree. And I think the decoration is all coming out of one concept. We normally, always, whatever we do, we do interiors mainly. But even for the Christmas tree, we, uh, we, we had to first come up with the concept. And the concepts often are based on you know, things that lie around, things that are there already. Like, so that we, go, we don't go out and shop. We just see what's there. And this time we realized we both decluttered our wardrobe and it was full of these iron hangers that, you know, we all have. And they're annoying, but they're very useful at times, but we keep them. <laughs> so we came up with the concept using those. So we created different shapes, like round shapes, uh, squares, uh, organic shapes using those hangers. So they, you know, very practical for Christmas tree because they still had the hangers. You could just hang them in the tree <laughs> and we had them covered in fabric. We had a lot of raffia at home, so we had them covered in raffia as well. And this sort of together created a very fun and, and, and uh, I think, crazy Christmas tree, which in the sense is not your normal tree you see in like, everyone's house. Now, I love the sense there, um, Haya, that you said um, fun, because I think there's such a sense, even though these are artist commissioned pieces and they're very avant-garde, that you are inspiring people to also reinvent their own homes and to kind of you know, just experiment a bit at Christmas and express themselves a bit within their own homes. Do you think that people should reinvent the aesthetic of Christmas that has become a little bit cliched? Oh, I would love if everyone did that. That would be great. Yes, of course. <laughs> no, I think what interests us in a way, because, you know, if you go out, now, this is not just for Christmas, like decoration, anything, you know, to these days, even like with a small budget, there is such a mass of things you could actually get. And normally, you know, for most people, this is so confusing. And you like something and then you buy it and you like something different and you buy it as well. And you end up with a really mismatching 
lots of stuff that you know has nothing to do with each other. So what we want to encourage people is to really think of what they want and how they want to decorate their house or how they want to furnish their house. And you know, kind of that's what interests us really. The idea of let's see, you have like a lot of red Christmas bulbs at home. So instead of going out randomly and adding stuff to that, see what you can do with those and how you can very carefully add to those to create like a, a fun and interesting concept that is lasting and you can reuse it next day and you might even want to reuse it in 10 years because it's great and it's fitting and it's your own style it comes from you and it's it's conceptual it's your own concept and i yeah. should say that your your concepts also bring in some beautiful figurines and hand painted sort of antique figures that you have around your christmas tree so you do have some elements of the past but then you know, the Yule log, can we just talk about that for a second? <laughs> because the Yule log, in the, it, which I think in the Confect party, which looked so much fun, um, the Yule log was a sort of centrepiece in the table, um, around the, you know, in the middle of the table. Uh, but it, it, the Yule log is quite an ancient tradition at Christmas. And your one was obviously an artist commissioned piece. But can you describe it and some of the concepts behind it? Your, your one was kind of, kind of a bit punk. Yes, and we like it to be a bit punk. I mean, I think now you don't see us, but I'm not very punk, but Bettina is a little punk. <laughs> Great. I can't wait to, I can't no. wait to meet you both. <laughs> uh, if you met her, you'd know, like, that's very much Bettina. I mean, we work a lot with, and again, you know, kind of, we both have families and we have like uh, boxes and boxes of screws and stuff lying around that we kind of, you know, don't know what to do with, but we just not people that throw things away easily. So I mean, it was a great way of using those screws and nails and uh, <laughs> tools that were lying around. And it's actually, it grew out of a previous uh, project we did where we did candlesticks using just um, clay and and working on the clay with screws and hammers and nails and uh, those became really like fun and cool candlesticks we used in a previous project. So that U-Log was a result of this previous work and I think it looked great on the table, yes. <laughs> it brought them some, yeah, it brought in some... Uh, uh, yeah, it broke the, the, as you said before, the cage and all sweet. We're not like... You don't like it all sweet. <laughs> Not too sweet. Yeah, Not raising a few. Sweet. Yeah, you've got to be yes. a bit of an anarchist at Christmas occasionally. I guess so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> As I said, we have kids and I think for the kids predominantly it's super important. They really like they really want their houses decorated. They love that. And I think it's also a way of breaking the I don't know, it's the same in London, I guess, but the very grey and gloomy month of November, December to bring in some colour and fun and yeah. So we have a tree now and but tell us what are the markers of a successful event for you? Oh, I can't. I th somehow, sometimes I feel for us, it's, you know, the moment the event is installed, it's done for us. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I mean, we have most fun, as I, you know, said before, like come up with a concept, you know, kind of, and really because I think concepts are super important for us because it, it limits the choice. I think what we often feel also with our clients, like choice is a problem. You know, if you have too much choice, it's very hard to do a concise project. So then it's creative. Yes. It's really a creative process when you have limits. Yes, exactly. We like obstacles. So also we like, you know, budgets. We like all that stuff we really love because it gives us sort of um, parameters to work in. So once, you know, kind of we feel within those given parameters, we created an event, we installed an event, 
be happy. And it looks good and it feels good. I mean, it's not only about looks, it's also about that it's coherent and, you know, kind of the artist we work with is happy, the client is happy. And then, you know, if it's a people's event, people come and we know it, it, it's done because people have fun. We just did an event now at the Kunsthaus, the new Kunsthaus in Zurich on the Sunday for a gala evening where we kind of, the theme was like pre-Columbian food. And we worked like crazy on, uh, on a pre-Columbian theme decoration and we knew the moment we left it was installed we knew people would have a great evening because it looked just so fab. (laughs) But Tina for you I mean we've talked about your events but the piece that um, that you feature in Confect you're very much a host and you you know it's a lovely image of your families coming in and out of the room children running about dogs it feels like your idea of a Christmas party has a really wonderful uh, spirit and a really kind of a sense of fun as well. Can you tell us how you like to entertain with your friends? <laughs> really normally, actually. I love good food. We both love good food and a good bottle of wine. And a lot of people are coming in and out. I think when it's dynamic, it's really nice. It, yeah, the sense of fluidity. Then, yes, <laughs> yes and, and, and it's light as well. And it's like this, it's not heavy because normally those traditionally family dinner are, can be kind of heavy. Can be a little, <laughs> naming no family <laughs> in particular here. But yeah, we, we've all been to those, those Sunday lunches or Christmas lunches even that have that sense of quiet and slightly kind of static. And I really think that your party seems like it was the opposite with people lounging around on the floor at the end, clutching glasses of brandy. I mean, that's really a party. <laughs> we should say that, you know... Rue Hippolyte is also a consultancy for design. Um, it's not just for these pop-ups. So you're also curating people's homes, you know, the permanent pieces that they live with um, and that they host with as well. And what would you say was your idea of a really beautiful house for, for entertaining? What are the elements that you think are really crucial? Yes, and I think, you know, kind of just that it's true to the people who work, we live there, you know. I mean, that's what we always try. Like, none of our interiors look the same. They're always very different because they're very much based on the person that commissions us or that, work, that we work with. And so it's, yeah, exactly. We very much take into consideration the history of that person or that enterprise, whatever it is, and try to make it sort of authentic to them. And that's also why we like to work with existing pieces. We would never just, you know, empty everything out and bring everything new in because then it looks, it's it's just staged and you don't feel the history, the the stories, the, the experiences of that person, which makes it life, I don't, alive. And timeless as well, because if you, if you follow trends, it's not like, I mean, a pair of shoes, it's your house. It's, it should stay like this for a long time. So... If you put your your story, your your life in your furniture, then it stays forever. It can stay forever. Well, it's, I I'm, I urge people to <laughs> flick through um, Complex's most recent issue and have a look at your beautiful house because it really is filled with colour and Christmassy and <laughs> spirit and just wonderful sense of fun and elegance. Bettina Rousseau and Haya Lang, we wish you both a very Merry Christmas and thanks for joining us on Confect Corner. 
You can find out more about their work at ruhippolite.com. Well, Julian and Marcella, we have officially hit party season. Do you have any particular favourite festive knees up from the past or one that you attend every year? Yeah, there are actually many. You know, December is always full of events. But something I remember well, it happened just a few times, was two friends of mine invited for a Christmas cocktail. They invited only women, all friends of them. So we were only women. And they were all very nicely dressed. There was great music, a huge Christmas tree, lots and lots of champagne and a gift raffle. There was so much fun. I remembered so well. It was so nice because first you think, oh, no, only women, no men. But at the end, it was really great fun. So I miss this. I would, I would love to have this again. Gillian, what about you? Well, being of uh, Czech heritage, I love that we uh, get invited to the um, Czech ambassador's residence for a special Czech Christmas dinner. And what I adore about it is it involves all the special Czech traditions that I knew when I was growing up and my parents would bring in sort of celebrating on Christmas Eve and having bells ring for Santa and coins under the plate. The the Czechs have a wonderful way of celebrating Christmas and I think it's very, very cozy but very, very traditional. Um, so those are one of my favourite Christmas celebrations. I actually, I always go to my neighbours and she's Swiss, she's a Swiss gallerist, a psychotherapist, she's amazing and she has a party to celebrate just the lighting of the candles on her tree because she only lights them for, you know, a while because they're real and then you all stand around with a glass and it's just such a wonderful moment to see real candles and in fact at the Rue Hippolyte party they also had real candles, a little bit edgy in this day and age <laughs> because they're quite flammable those fir, those fir trees um, but maybe not so early on in the season it's such a beautiful thing that's dying out I mean in England you really don't see those flickering actual kind of flickering fire on the tree very often <laughs> no gosh wouldn't it be lovely I doubt any of the hotels in London will be having real fires either Sophie on their candles on their no. trees no <laughs> Well, coming up, we have Christmas wreaths and festive baking. But next, we're getting cosy with some wolf-themed stories. To Finland now, where we meet a team of local grandmothers who've been hired by a company called Musufami to knit their woolly hats. We sent our reporter Petri Burtz off to get the story. We've come to the southwestern village of Pöytyä, located in the heart of the Finnish countryside, where fields of weeds and barley stretch as far as the eye can see. The inhabitants of the region are known for being hardy and hardworking, trades born out of centuries of toiling the fields this far north. It is customary for the women here to spend their winters knitting clothing and accessories for their communities, using yarn spun from the high-quality wool of the local sheep. This is home to the Finnish fashion brand Mussefarmi, whose name quite literally means the Beanie Farm. It was started as a hobby for founders Anna and Janne Rauhansu, who had relocated back to their native Finland from Davos, Switzerland. But it quickly turned into a commercial venture. And when the couple wanted to scale up their production of knitted beanies, they turned to a somewhat surprising yet logical resource, the local grandmothers, as Anna Rauhansu explains. Well, that's what you do in, in the countryside. You turn to your neighbors and you ask for help. So the first grannies were 
uh, my mother-in-law and her friends, and then it started to grow organically. At the moment, we employ around uh, 80 retired ladies and actually one grandpa, in addition to all the grannies that need for us. We call them Musu grannies, and they're really proud of the title. And for them, it's not only about money, but it's also about the community and having something meaningful to do. So they get to meet each other like every three weeks. We call it the knitting circles. So they bring in the knitwear that's ready and then we give out the yarn and all the instructions. And and also the grannies, they share knitting tips with each other, like how to do this and this so it looks nicer. And knitting is something they've been doing most of their lives, I suppose. So in a, in a way you are making sure that this craft continues. Yes, it's also about our cultural heritage in Finland and also my personal like heritage as growing up on farms one generation after another, passing certain craftsmanship to the next generation. So we are making sure this kind of skill, it, it doesn't like vanish, but we keep up with it. And also we are planning to have the next generation, the school kids to learn how to make the hats like our grannies, so they get to knit a hat in school. And you make hats and accessories. Could you maybe name some of your most popular products? I see you're wearing a nice white beanie. What What is the name of the hat that you are wearing? This one is called Siahoi. As we are here in the middle of the woods and fields, you cannot actually see the sea. You can just see the fields. So we turn this land ahoy the other way around. It's Siahoi. We have a lighthouse in Rihikoski village. Oh no, it's an old fire station that's looking like a lighthouse and that's where the inspiration kind of came for the Siahoi hat. But our most popular products are hats that are like single colored. They have a strong structure and really bulky wool. In Scandinavia the bulky wool is trending, so you you should have your hat as fat as possible and as soft as possible, of course. I had a chance to try some of your hats earlier on, the, just the material. I mean, they're really, really thick and fluffy and, and just feel amazing just, you know, in hand by touching them. I suppose that they're also really good at keeping you warm in the long and cold Finnish winter. Yes, that's what they're designed for, to keep you warm. But wool is also, it's really breathable material and it handles moisture well. So also you can wear the wool hat in a rain, not only in a snowstorm. Inside the Musufarmi production facility, a disused former village elementary school, four Musu grandmothers are sitting and knitting. Laughter and chatter fills the air, and it is obvious that this is more than just work for them. It also fills an important social function and fosters a sense of purpose and togetherness in the elderly women of the sparsely populated region. I'm Mario. I'm Ansoili. I'm Ansali. My name is Tita. My mother and my grandmother taught me when I was a child. I was about five or six years old when I studied. And what about you? How did you learn to knit? At the school and my grandmother and mother. And uh, I was uh, 13, 14 years old. What is it that you enjoy most about working for Musufarmi? Uh, the other grannies, it's nice to talk to them and get ideas, and particularly the ones who have been longer than I myself. The money we get from this is more or less pocket money, but we have something sensible to do, and we enjoy the the finished wool. Very soft and uh, very easy to handle. 
And what about you? What do you like most about your job? And of course, grannies, all grannies. Production could hardly get more local than this. The yarn is spun on site as the sheep graze just outside the building. Okay, so let's let's meet our sheep here. This is Tupsu. Tupsu is she's the alpha sheep. She's the leader of the, the crew and she's re also really smart. Like Their wool is among the rarest in the world, as Anne Rauhansu explains. Finn sheep is in origin a Finnish land race and it's really rare. And the wool of the fin sheep is almost as fine and almost as soft as merino wool. Actually, merino wool and fin sheep wool are the only uh, wool fibers that have the scales pointing inside, making the fiber like particularly soft. In addition to that, fin sheep wool is also really lustrous, so it's almost uh, shining as a silk when it's uh, processed in the right way. At the same time, uh, almost 70% of the Finnish wool is treated as a waste. It has no market value and this is something we are trying to change. We are paying the farmers a fair price for the raw wool and processing this fine wool as one of the greatest yarns on earth. The business is growing rapidly and the firm now employs close to 100 local grandmothers. They need beanies that are sold across the world in famed stores such as Merci Paris Gallery Lafayette, Isetan Shinjuku in Tokyo, or Tom Greyhound in Seoul. At the moment we have retailers in 16 countries and our webshop delivers worldwide. But the most important countries for us are uh, France, uh, UK and Sweden at the moment. The Japanese market is really potential for us. And we have the same distributor as the Finnish fashion brand Marimekko. In addition to the high quality materials and the timeless design, it is the brand's story that has won it so many plaudits, both in Finland and abroad. These women are not a marketing gimmick. They are the heart and soul of Musufarmi. Everything that the company does, from its materials to its production and ownership, is deeply rooted in the craft traditions and culture of rural Finland. For Confect in Pöytyä, southwestern Finland, I'm Petri Burtsov. Thanks, Petri. It's so great to hear from brands who are making use of local skills and materials. And we're going to hear from another one shortly. But first, Marcella, what brands are you turning to this winter for your woolly jumpers? I'm actually not so much for brands, but more material, because somehow, probably some of you will understand, I just have a little bit enough of cashmere and feel attracted from sheep's, means lamb's wool. Also, if it's a little bit scratchy. I love it. It's just more honest. It isn't so warm, actually. It can also cool a little bit, but warm in the right situations. And my most favorite piece is it's a very thick lamb's wool jumper. It's so thick <laughs> and dense knitted, then you can put it as a sculpture on the table. Almost. <laughs> it stands for itself. No, it's it's huge. It's X large and I love it. It's really no wind can get through and uh, it's I think it's even water repellent like a lot of lamb's wool, like the fisherman jumpers you maybe know. So for me it's this actually no brand thick woolen jumper. Beautiful. I've been wearing and obsessing over Loden. Maybe it's editing confect, but I've now got so many beautiful Loden pieces from a brand called Geiger, 
It's a Tyrolean brand. It's just so, it just repels, even the rain, in fact. And once you've introduced load into your wardrobe, there's no turning back. Well, to continue the woolly theme, I met with Caroline Faye Fright to discuss her new clothing brand, Height. Height, spelled H-Y-H-T, is an old English word that means hope, expectation and trust. Height is a made-to-measure service that specialises in wool, which is all sourced within the British Isles. Their slow fashion approach to manufacturing is sustainable and all about producing a garment for life. The focus is on material, and after vast amounts of research, Caroline realised that the state of the British wool industry wasn't quite what she thought. She tells me more about the challenges and advantages of running a locally sourced brand. Height started out because I was conscious of the clothes that I was wearing and how little I knew about them, where they were from, who made them, what they were made with, if they had natural fibres in them at all, where they were grown. It sparked my curiosity and I started researching into whether I could source local fibres to make woolen garments. And I called every commercial mill I could find and asked, can I order some samples of British wool on a cone for machine knitting? And more often than not, they said, oh, we don't do that. And when I challenged and asked why, they said, well, it's too coarse, it's unwearable, it's suitable for carpets, it's not something that anyone that's interested in fashion would be interested to buy. Apart from a few exceptions, and I sourced every sample of wool on a cone that I could find that had been grown in the British Isles, and started knitting up swatches and seeing how it felt, the softness, the luster, seeing how it would drape on a garment, and thought, why don't I design garments to demonstrate how wearable, how beautiful some British wool can be. And not all British wool is suitable necessarily to be worn against the skin. Some of it's much more suitable for insulation or fireman's wear because it's fire resistant or uh, suitable for outerwear. But I, there are definitely, we've got 72 breeds of sheep in this country that are purebred and many of them produce wool that is wearable and beautiful to work with. Now, we're surrounded, I should say, in the studio here in London by beautiful jumpers. <laughs> and they feel so soft. Um, well, the one I'm, I'm holding is this incredible piece, actually. It's kind of an amazing kind of biscuit-coloured jumper that's kind of almost bat wings, but amazing. Really nothing that you've described as this kind of scratchy, you know, texture that we're talking about. So tell me about the different breeds that you encountered. And what's this one, for instance, the one I'm, I'm holding? So that garment's made with a blend of blue-faced Leicester, which is one of the softest fibres we can find in Britain, when it comes to a micron count, which is basically how small the fibre is. And the lower the number in the micron count, the, the softer the fibre is. And you can find blue-faced Leicester with a similar micron count to something like Merino, which we know is a soft wool. And blue-faced Leicester is quite a common breed in Britain because it's a very good, it's a very good breeding ram. But it's, it's soft to the touch. It's, it's got a lovely drape. And this... Fibre is blended with a masham for strength. So the blue faced Leicester is a little sheep. Yes. Um, so it's really, I love the name. <laughs> but it's funny because when you drive around the UK, you find, you see these huge woolen mills. I mean, it used to be the backbone of our economy. But I was reading um, some of your literature and it was talking about the kind of decline in wool. I mean, obviously those woolen mills are, are now, a lot of them, defunct. You know, the fortunes of the wool industry have fallen so hard, even more recently during the COVID epidemic. So can you tell me a bit about the industry um, you know, in the wider context? Sure. So in the medieval period, it was 
a, a commodity that was famous around the world. So much so that still in the House of Lords, the Lord Speaker sits on a red cushion stuffed with wool called the wool sack to remind the centre of power how important wool is to the, to the British economy. And that's a far cry from where we see wool today. Wool today, the market doesn't cover the costs often of shearing for the sheep. So a farmer might pay £1.50 for a sheep to be shorn, but get maybe 40p to a pound for the fleece. And so quite often farmers don't bother sending some of their wool to market and it will be burned or it will be buried because it's good for the soil or it will be left to rot on the side. There isn't enough of a market and I was really interested in hearing from people that work within the commercial wool industry in Britain that it is regarded as coarse and unwearable and I think that's a misconception that needed to be challenged. So whilst a clip, a wool clip, would cover the cost of a year's rent for a farmer, now it doesn't cover the cost of shearing and it's far more often just a byproduct of the meat industry than a focus for a farmer. And I'm not a, I'm not a farmer and I'm certainly not a geneticist, but it's generally understood that when you're breeding your, your flock for sheep, you focus, if you focus on fibre, you compromise the quality of meat. And if you focus on meat, you've compromised the quality of the fibre on your flock. And so if you're not incentivized to produce a flock for fibre, then you'll focus on meat because that's where your margin's at. Of course. It seems like... Yeah, it's such an absolute shame because, I mean, these pieces are so beautiful. And, you know, what I really love about the brand um, is that you really want to slow things down and make people engage with these garments, that they'd have them for life, that they wear them, they they don't kind of wash them to death, they let the wool breathe and become part of their wardrobe, part of their story. Historically, we would have had one, maybe two woolen garments and we would have washed them very rarely we would have spot washed them and folded them and put them away in a drawer and wrapped them to protect them from moths and we would have darned them if they'd have been if the larvae the pesky larvae had found their way into them and that has gone out of the window now as a as a way that we think about our clothes when with fast fashion and with fashion made from synthetics we very rarely mend our clothes and 50% of all garments made globally end up in landfill. The vast majority are non-biodegradable and very, very difficult to recycle. So what I was interested in is also slowing everything down and giving people an insight into how these garments are made and where the fibre is from. So if people order a garment, there's all sorts of content that I'll send them telling them this is where the fibre's from, this is who's made it, um, and a little bit about the history around wool and knitting and garment making in this country. And you're a knitter, so tell me about meeting other craftsmen along the way. How did you find the people who are going to work on this scale, you know, incredibly intimate, incredibly quite niche? How did you convince these artisans to work for you? Um, Because, you know, of profit margins and, you know, the state of the industry, as you've just described. Hours of research, hundreds of conversations, and the most helpful mishmash of a community of people around the country. If I called one person, they'd say, oh, you must speak to Maureen in the Wirral, or you must go and talk to Dave down in the southwest. It was just one of those rabbit holes, well, multiple rabbit holes, a whole warren of them. And I ended up finding a group of people who now make these garments, and they 
take great care in how they're fully fashioned, knitted on machine and then linked, which is a linking is when you hook each of the stitches onto a machine and then thread the, the yarn through so that it, it's knit so that it's all linked flat as opposed to what is often done in fast fashion where it's folded over and overlocked and just kind of sewn on a machine. And so then they're hand finished and there are hands on these garments through every stage of the process. And there are people in Britain that want that industry to be revived and we're delighted to to hear that there are more and more people that are, are interested in doing that. And I made a bit of a challenge for myself. So I, I thought, if I'm going to focus on British wool, that's one thing. But I decided to create a, a kind of firm boundary of the British Isles for everything for this brand. So the packaging is made locally. The the labels are made out of hand-woven linen from Northern Ireland, where there is there was a very rich... Um, history of, of linen manufacture. I didn't want to just buy them from Turkey or from China and have them printed there. And even uh, the designer that I worked with, Ali Hansen, who created the brand for Height, he took the brief of the, the aisles as his boundary and went in deep into the, the typography and symbology archive of British graphic design. Well, it's a beautiful brand. And I think, you know, as you said just before we came on air, this Shetland wool is now coveted in Japan and you know it's a sense of finding and engaging with those wool enthusiasts um, around the world and here and sort of telling the story because actually once you're hooked on wool there's no turning back because of its amazing properties and that breathability and that kind of amazing sort of ecosystem that's in there sort of like it's practically self-cleaning this stuff. Yeah it's breathable it has resilience and um, memory of shape it's flame retardant, it's biodegradable, it's uh, water resistant, antibacterial, and so you don't need to wash it all the time. Garments should last a lifetime. It should last 20, 30 years. My mum has garments from the 70s, woolen garments that she's looked after, and they're still in perfect nick because they spring back to the original shape and she, she has cared for them. Do you have to bath them like a baby? I mean, they're basically members of the family. <laughs> <laughs> that was Caroline Fay Fright founder of the clothing brand Height. And you can find more about it at height.co. You're listening to Confet Corner, and our next story takes us to Slovenia. In Slovenia, people don't say it with flowers, they show their feelings on a piece of gingerbread. And not just any old gingerbread, but handmade, painstakingly decorated mini works of art. They're called lest, and they're far too good to eat. Instead, they're meant to be kept as souvenirs, and in many cases, they are for decades. One of the best places to see traditional lest is Gostilna Lektar, which translates as the gingerbread inn. Our correspondent, Guy Delaunay, went there for a taster course in Lest production. Welcome to Gostilna Lestar. We're smack in the centre of the chocolate box pretty old town of Radolica in northern Slovenia. And, true to its name, this is an establishment of wine, song and gingerbread. To, to 
The basement of the 500-year-old inn is the domain of Moitze Getsch. This is where she single-handedly crafts the creations that give Gostilna Lestar its name. A lest is a gingerbread shape that's designed to please the eyes rather than the taste buds. The hearts, stars and Father Christmas figures are all painted with a deep red glaze and hand-decorated with everything from lines of poetry to miniature mirrors. And as Moitze can attest, it's not work for the impatient. First we prepare the dough, which contains flour, spices and the main ingredient chestnut honey. Uh, this dough must rest for at least two weeks to a month or even more. So the longer it lasts, the better it is. After this time, we knead it and uh, bake it. And then um, after a few days, when they're quite dry, so dry enough for the painting, we started uh, coloring them in red because also other colors, but red is the most traditional because it's the color of love. And the hearts are meant to be as a love gifts usually, not just for lovers, but also for families and friends. And when they are red, we wait one day, and then we make one part of the decoration, wait another day, and then we finish the decoration. And when the cookie is finished, we just wrap it to keep it longer and that's it. The cookie is made to last forever actually. In the whole production there are no eggs, no milk, no butter, no yeast, nothing that can spoil. Just two good preservatives, spices and honey. Moitza is still only 27 years old but she's already been in the gingerbread business for 11 years. She actually grew up in Gostilna Lestar, where her parents own and run the restaurant and rooms. And during her childhood, the family dreamed of restarting gingerbread production at the inn after a hiatus of many decades. Lacking the know-how, they had to persuade a master maker to show them the way. They asked them if maybe there would be a chance someday to, uh, uh, for us to do this tradition. Uh, in any way in our house and uh, first they were not up for it uh, because it's strictly family and in generations then their daughters didn't want to continue someday they just uh, decided that they would maybe agree with it and uh, Georg, the master of this production, he just uh, showed us that day, she, uh, he showed us everything. And I was also very happy because I could skip school. I really remember that it was when I was 12 years old. And I really love to bake and decorate and everything. Like you said, your daughter, I was also like that and I'm still like that. I love to bake sweets. And um, it just became my passion. And when I uh, was old enough, uh, to be able to work, you know, uh, like legally. <laughs> I, of course, started to work this and I do it ever since. As you may have gathered by now, Gostilna Lestar is very much a family affair. Moitza's father, Jorge Andras, is the host, serenading guests in the restaurant. <laughs> He also brings curious visitors downstairs to the gingerbread workshop come museum, where Moitza enlists the help of her mother Lili and twin brother Miha. I rap stuff. <laughs> <laughs> 
It sounds uh, unimportant, but I think it is important, you know, because it keeps it from uh, elements and uh, and fading and getting old. And you you wipe the dust off plastic, you know, but underneath it's still uh, brand new. So, how to what extent is the whole thing like a, a family operation? Oh, it's one hundred percent family operated, you know. My sister does everything and, and I rap. <laughs> <laughs> Many weddings are in summertime, so, so also the school ends in summertime. So we usually have a very busy season in summer. In Christmas time, uh, people really love to have cookies that, that they can put and hang on their Christmas tree. And that's very, very popular. And I always have to keep up with this. This obviously isn't going to be a tradition that's going to die in Radolica anytime soon. How do you see it continuing? I believe it will continue because I really like to see uh, children that are very young. They uh, come of end of the school year and they order uh, for their teacher like thank you very much or we will miss you or and uh, it's really nice to see that they actually know and would like to gift it now i know what you're thinking despite all this talk of gingerbread art can i actually eat one of these lest well you could but bearing in mind that the price reflects the weeks of production and individual attention to detail, it would make for a rather expensive snack. For Confect in Radolica, I'm Guy Delaunay. Thank you, Guy, and for the final festive thought, we tackle the sometimes thorny subject of wreaths. Writer Jessica Bumpers takes us through the sensory overload of her first wreath-making class and expands on the wreath's rich and storied history as a symbol of power, success and celebration. It was my boyfriend who signed us up for a wreath-making class. We set out on a misty Sunday morning in London and arrived in a room to find tables set with scissors, wire and string. In the corner of the room was a table that beckoned with branches and bulging piles of bracken, wheat, spiky teasel, baby's breath, yarrow and poppy seed heads. I set to work using the string as a tacking stitch. I began to find my own pilot on style. At the top, the russet bronze of traditional crisp autumn leaves tucked in with the curling hydrangea head, descending into a muddle of yellow yarrow stems jostling with wheat sheaf bundles and bulbous poppy seeds before bursts of baby's breath swelled into lush eucalyptus clusters. I wasn't too bothered about being neat. It felt human, warm and welcoming, just as a wreath should be. Wreaths beg the question, what's behind the door on which one hangs? Is it as magical a scene as the spiral of foliage might suggest? Yet the history is not only associated with Christmas cheer. In ancient Egypt, wreaths were worn as chaplets with flowers sewn to linen and tied around the head. The Etruscans wore wreath crowns and, in ancient Greece and Rome, they were used as rewards for military success and excellence. Woven harvest wreaths, whose roots lie in old Europe, were created to celebrate a successful harvest and ensure good fortune. 
During the Italian Renaissance, it became customary to wear a wreath on festive occasions, and they have consistently been a sign of celebration, religion and power. The Lutherans in 16th century Germany are thought to be the first to have used Advent wreaths. In this regard, they are still going strong. In the US, wreaths hang on doors well before and beyond December. In autumn, clusters of orange and burnt umber nod to themes of Halloween and Thanksgiving all at once. They can be a year-round affair, and I have made them with springtime shades of pink, lilac and yellow. When I asked my boyfriend, who is American, what he likes about wreaths, he described their potential to outshine even the star of the show, the Christmas tree, as a festive symbol because of their outward hope. They are public displays of decoration, whereas the tree sits inside, private. Mine are eclectic, charming, full circles that celebrate the season with whatever dried blooms I have to hand. I make a batch and deliver them as gifts. I hope they are hung from the door and spark a moment of uplift for visitors and passers-by alike on cold, crisp and misty mornings. That was writer Jessica Bumpus, and you can find the print version of that piece in the latest edition of Confect, if you haven't already picked it up. Now, that certainly got me in the spirit of Christmas, and I love the idea of the wreath enticing you to think of the house that lies behind the door. Uh, Marcella, have you ever made a Christmas wreath, or do you have a favoured decoration? I have a favourite decoration, but I must mention this when I once spent the holidays in Palm Springs. So the funniest wreath I ever saw is pink and orange wreaths hanging on also orange, orange, orange house um, doors in Palm Springs. It's the funniest thing I ever saw in my life. And I expected like trees and our classical colors, red, green, mistletoes, but um, it was very different there. So I thought, okay, why not? But coming back to, to Zurich, I realized it doesn't work here. So here I prefer just um, a classic mistletoe. I totally agree. But I like to really deck out. You know, I'm a pretty much kind of maximalist when it comes to foliage. I like to go into a forest, wrestle out some proper holly, ivy, mistletoe, climb a few trees and really then bring it all in alongside the tree. So then you just you feel that sense of the slightly pagan, I suppose. <laughs> it's like that's what we've been doing for hundreds, thousands of years. And I think it, it's nice to not feel too neat. What about you, Gillian? I've not been ambitious enough to do these, but I absolutely adore dressing a Christmas tree. And I quite like going to the wonderful ribbon shop, Vivi Rouleau in Marleven. And I kind of like their decorations for sewing and clothes and embroidery and put them on my Christmas tree. And they have things like lovely tiny little robins and white flowers and little jewellery. So so my Christmas tree is a little unusual, as you can imagine. It's more a haberdashery on my Christmas tree. Sounds amazing. And actually, we should go when we're in Paris to this beautiful shop in Saint-Germain-de-Paris called Petterhof, and it sells just Russian, like, Russian decorations and they're all beautifully decorated and just hand done like little figurines and each one is so unique and like an investment if you keep them well enough (laughs) but um, there's so many beautiful little spots to get decorations in Paris it's ruinous we should have a little turn of the (laughs) neighbourhood we will I'm sure 
Well, that's all we have time for for this episode. Thank you to Gillian Tobias and Marcella Palak for keeping me company again. Our winter issue of Confect is out now. Get your copy delivered to your door by subscribing at confectmagazine.com. Or why not give somebody a subscription for Christmas this year? While you're on our website, do sign up for our weekly newsletter, Confect Compact, for interviews, fashion tips, wine recommendations and recipes. Confect Corner is produced by Holly Fisher, Carlotta Ribello and Paige Reynolds. We'll be back next month with more. But until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>